Well, welcome to Bayou City. We are so glad that you are here today. I don't know if you got my email this week. I sent you a personal email. No, I'm just kidding. I sent a mass email uh, to the church because I've been thinking a lot about the summer. Uh, My kids are out of school and uh, that's when parents start thinking about the summer is uh, when you start spending all day with them. Uh, No offense to my kids, of course. They're not here. They're never going to know that I said that. Um, But we think of summer as just a a vacation, essentially. I I can relax. I can breathe in. uh, I get to do a bunch of things. Uh, The truth is most of us have normal jobs and nothing changed between the end of May and the beginning of June. You got to be there at eight. You got to go home at five. But summer definitely is a time, at, at least when we do sort of breathe in. Um, but I was remember back when I was a kid, like specifically the summer between uh, eighth grade and ninth grade. So I finished my eighth grade year uh, very short uh, and grew uh, four, five, six inches uh, in that couple of months before I started uh, my, my first year of high school, which thank God that I grew up. I mean, look at me now. I'm not like a giant. So imagine... Uh, how short I must have been when I ended eighth grade. It, it was a, a summer of uh, growth. Uh, it was a growth spurt that summer. And, and so I've been thinking about here at Bayou City and our family, what would it be like if we all had a, a summer spiritual growth spurt? You know, you know, what if we all grew six inches this summer? I mean, think about what a better church we would be. Uh, think about how much more accurately we would represent Jesus uh, in this community uh, if we all were growing up spiritually. I don't know about for you, but for me, it's, it's easy to find uh, uh, contentment in every season, which can be a good thing, but then it can lead to being stagnant. And, and so I, I don't know, maybe you, have, uh, you feel like your faith is on fire and it's never been more alive. By all means, we want to just throw gasoline on that. But if you have become... Uh, you have found a spiritual cul-de-sac and you just feel like you're kind of driving around um, just seeing the same three or four houses and you're interested in something a little bit more, then I'd encourage you to come along with me. I, I need a summer of a spiritual growth spurt. And so, you know, that can look a lot of different ways for, for us. It could be diving into the scripture with more intentional study. It could be reading the scripture. It could be memorizing the scripture. Uh, it could be using your spiritual gift. There, there are lots of different ways, but I want to encourage you to think about um, what's my next step of spiritual maturity. And just again, just imagine if we all did something, uh, what a better church we would be. Open up your Bible, turn to John chapter 3. We've been making our way through the Gospel of John. When my father-in-law retired, he started playing more golf. And so that year, they bought me some golf clubs and gave me private lessons for my birthday. I assume so that I would not embarrass him if he ever invited me to go and play golf with him. That was about 10 years ago. We've still never played golf, so clearly... The private golf lessons didn't happen, but I remember showing up to the golf course and I was meeting the instructor instructor on the driving range, which is, you know, it's not private lessons if the whole world can see it, I I think. And I'm not a great golf player, uh, so I didn't want people watching me practice. But sure enough, she had me standing there. She laid some golf clubs on the ground and essentially was like, don't let your club go here or there. And, you know, I would tell her, like, I just want to hit the ball in the air. Like, that's my main goal. I don't care how far it goes. I don't care if it's anywhere near uh, the green uh, or the fairway. If it just goes in the air, that's, that's, a, that's a win uh, for 
for me. I don't know if the golf lessons uh, paid off, but I do know that having a private instructor was, was better uh, than if I had just played a bunch of golf by myself. Right? Uh, in John chapter 3, a man named Nicodemus is going to get some private lessons, uh, except for not from a golf instructor, obviously. He's going to get a private lesson from Jesus. And if you pull out your listening guide and you pull out your Bible, there are a few things that I want us all walking away with. These are the five private lessons of Nicodemus. The five private lessons of Nicodemus. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with them. So it says that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Now, almost everyone in Jerusalem or in, in Israel at the time is uh, they're practicing Judaism. But there were different in our vernacular denominations within Judaism. And the denomination or the sect that Nicodemus is a part of is called the Pharisees. Now, just like in Christianity today, you will meet people who claim to follow Christ who are very relaxed and laissez-faire, essentially like, hey, whatever goes, goes, and I'm not really reading my Bible, and I'm not attending church, but yeah, I believe in, in Jesus. Now, we can debate about whether they believe in Jesus or not later on, but you have people who identify as followers of Christ and are very relaxed. Then you have people who uh, identify as followers of Christ who are the most zealous. I mean, they if, they, if you are not reading your Bible like most of the day, they look in you as being worthy of uh, being judged. And Nicodemus was on that end. He was very faithful. He was very devout. Uh, he was very committed to not just his faith, but the zealousness of his faith. And, and it says that not only is he a Pharisee, so that's the denomination within Judaism that he was a part of, he is a member of the Jewish ruling party. That's called the Sanhedrin. It's mentioned other places in the gospel. They, they were the, the leaders of Israel. Remember, at this time, Israel had no king. They were underneath the Roman Empire, and so Caesar essentially was their lord, uh, but they didn't have anybody locally uh, that was in charge. But the Roman Empire would use local leaders like the Sanhedrin to keep the people in order because it meant that they had to send less resources from Rome, whether it was money, soldiers, or governors. And so Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he was a part of this little council of Jewish leaders that were helping lead the entire nation. And it says that he comes to Jesus at night. Now, there are two reasons why he could have come at night. Reason number one is because he's embarrassed to be seen with Jesus. Remember, we just learned he's a Pharisee, so he's of the most zealous of the faith. He's also a part of this ruling council, which you had to have the right pedigree to be able to qualify for that ruling council. Ruling, ruling council. You, you, you couldn't just uh, ascend there. You had to be born in the right family at the right time, have the right connections, those kinds of things. And so it could be that he's a little embarrassed about, about asking Jesus legitimate questions. Right? Because Jesus didn't have the training that Nicodemus had. Now we give Jesus the benefit of the doubt because what we know is that he's the eternal son of God and it's like, it's cool if you don't wanna to go to seminary. Right? <laughs> but Nicodemus didn't know that. Uh, what he knew about Jesus was Jesus was from Nazareth, that's northern Israel. If you wanted to be kind of in the, the, the right group, you, you really needed to be born in southern Israel near Jerusalem. 
Uh, Jesus had, as far as we can tell, both history and from what we can discern from the scripture, he didn't go to some kind of formal training school. Most likely, he became a carpenter just like Joseph was a carpenter until about the age of 30, he transitioned into full-time ministry. Nicodemus had the opposite story of that. He either decided himself or his family decided early on in his life, you're going to be a teacher of Israel. And so from as as early as possible, he was going to school, not just school, but the right kind of school. It would be like going to Brown for undergrad after having been at a very private, elite, preparatory high school, and then your MBA at Harvard, and then you know you went to the Yale Law School just to just to cover all your bases, make sure you had all your career opportunities available to you. That would have been Nicodemus's story. And Jesus is more of the background of, uh, I mean, I took a couple of classes at community college, but yet he has the power of God on him when he teaches. And his teaching is accompanied by these miracles. So Nicodemus knows something is different here, but you can imagine the tension in him. If I tell my Yale Law School buddies and my Harvard MBA buds, I'm going to talk with this community school dropout and ask him some questions. It's not going to look good. So he comes at night. That's option number one. Option number two is he totally didn't care what other people thought. And that's a legitimate thing, except for he just wants more time with Jesus. Uh, Jesus had crowds around him all during the day. In fact, earlier in John chapter two, uh, he's just caused real commotion in the temple. And so you can imagine people are flocking around Jerusalem or Jesus during the day. Uh, and so Nicodemus wants to have a long conversation with him and it makes sense if he goes and talks to Jesus at night. But regardless, he goes at night and the author of this gospel, John, makes sure that we know it. Verse three, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time in their mother's womb to be born. Now, if you remember from verse two, it seems like Nicodemus asked Jesus a question, but he really doesn't. He just sort of makes a statement that really just would end dot, 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 maybe question mark. I mean, look at what he says in verse two. For no one could perform these signs you are doing if God were not with him. So he acknowledges that Jesus is a teacher who has this anointing from God and he wants to ask a question, but he doesn't really know what to ask. So he just sort of makes a vague statement. And Jesus doesn't even, it's almost as if, Jesus wasn't listening to him because out of the blue, he says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, this would have been offensive to Nicodemus because the one thing Nicodemus was sure of is that he was already in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God to an Israelite was the, the rule, the power, the authority of God. And they believed in their heart and they knew from their scripture that God was in charge of everything. He was creator of the world. He's Lord over all. Except for like in our day, most people are not acknowledging that. Uh, in Nicodemus' day, lots of people were worshiping lots of different gods. They were making sacrifices to idols. They were living according to their own morality. But Israel was unique. Israel was trying to order itself under the authority and lordship of God. So they viewed themselves as this unique, distinct people. Right? 
One day, all of the earth was going to be under the kingdom, the lordship, the kingship of God. But even now, they're getting a head start. They're ordering their lives according to his reign. So when Jesus says no one gets to be in the kingdom of God, in fact, no one gets to even see it unless they're born again, we don't read that as any offense. But Nicodemus would have been offended because he was sure that he was already in the kingdom. Why? Because he was a good person? No. What Nicodemus believed got him into the kingdom of God was his parents. And then his grandparents and his great-grandparents see Nicodemus like, Most Jewish people could trace his lineage all the way back to a man named Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, God picks a man out of obscurity, Abraham, and says, you're going to follow me, and I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people, and I'm going to bless you. And through you and your descendants, I'm going to bless the whole world. And your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And Abraham does follow God, and Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac has a son, and his sons have sons, and on and on and on. And Nicodemus could trace his ancestry back to Abraham. I don't know if you've taken one of those DNA tests to find out where you're from. I did. I still have no idea where I'm from because it's like seven different places, right? Nicodemus would not have had that problem. Uh, His ancestry.com would have just said Abraham. And because that said Abraham, he said, well, I'm in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You have to be born again. And he doesn't understand this or at least he's confused by it. So he says to Jesus in verse four, how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asks, surely they cannot enter a second time in their mother's womb to be born. Now probably Nicodemus isn't suggesting that he even thinks that's a possibility. He just doesn't really understand what Jesus is talking about. And so he thinks Jesus is speaking in metaphor. So he asks a question in metaphor. Verse five, Jesus goes on to explain it more. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. So he says we need to be born of the water, which good news you already have. That's your natural birth. But you also have to be born of the Spirit. Which again, if you've grown up in church, that, that's like, of course. But to Nicodemus, this is the first time he's ever heard it. His whole life, someone has just been saying, to be born of the water is to be born of the Spirit. To be born of uh, you know, natural means, if you have a birth certificate, then you are a part of the kingdom of God. And, and Jesus is saying, no, once naturally and once supernaturally. Verse eight, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Nicodemus had reduced, along with his sect, his denomination, had reduced being in the kingdom of God down to a simple formula. Who are your parents? 
Jesus says, no, it's not like that. You're being born of the Spirit. And, and to be born of the Spirit is a mystery. Just like you don't know where the wind comes from, you don't know where the Spirit comes from either. You, you don't know how God is at work. I mean, if you're a parent, remember when your kids were born, was there anything formulaic about it? Uh, right? With two of our kids, our, our daughters, we went to the hospital false alarm. Right? Because... Amanda started having some contraction type things. And so you Google, you know, what point should I go to the hospital? And it says, go at this minute mark in between contractions. But uh, ladies, did your experience line up 1000% with what you read in a book or on the internet? No, every person is unique. So it leaves this weird gray area. And in our family, where there's gray area, go to the hospital. That's that's our simple rule. And so we went to the hospital and they checked and then they sent us home, right? There's no formula about it. Our son Jackson, who's 13, uh, when he was born, uh, it it did feel like, oh, this is a simple formula. This is gonna be easy. We went to the doctor uh, that morning and, and Amanda was at her due date. And so they said, hey, come back tonight. We're going to induce tomorrow so you can, you can check into the hospital tonight, kind of get everything said. We'll get the, the induction going in the morning and, and your baby boy will be born tomorrow. And we're like, okay, so that sounds great because it was going to be, it was a Thursday and Thursday night at the time happened to be our favorite TV night. So we thought, this is perfect. We don't have any kids at this point. You know, he is our first. So we thought we're going to go to the hospital tonight. We're going to check in. I'm just going to be kind of like a hotel, a very, very expensive hotel. But the insurance is going to pay for like 900% of that, right? I'm sure. We're going to watch a little TV. And in the morning, they're just going to, you know, give you a shot. And this baby's just going to, right there. This is going to be so great. We're going to be such fantastic parents. Well, we get to the hospital to check in. And, and they were not interested in our favorite shows. And what time they came on, they started hooking her up to IVs this and monitors that. And, and she was stuck in the bed. It was the opposite of a relaxful evening, relaxful evening watching TV. So even when it was a formula, it wasn't a formula. But yet, when it comes to faith, we're just like, we'll just reduce it down to its to something we can bank on every time. You do this, you sprinkle in some of this, you twist it a little bit here, you get the result you're after. That was what Nicodemus was familiar with. You're born Jewish, or you become Jewish, then you have kids, they're in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, no, it's, it's a work of God's spirit. And when the spirit comes and when it goes and where he comes from, you don't know. There are, as I mentioned, the five private lessons. The first one, which we've been talking about, is num- number one, you must be born again. Number two, Jesus is from heaven. Therefore, his teaching is from heaven. Number one, you must be born again. Number two, Jesus is from heaven. Therefore, his teaching is from heaven. Because Nicodemus says, how can this be? Verse 10, are you Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? 
No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Nicodemus says, I mean, this is my translation. Hey, you're crazy. This, this doesn't make any sense. And Jesus says, you're, you're supposed to be Israel's teacher. And you're having a hard time understanding what I'm saying. And then he says, I've been speaking about earthly things. And when you think about the Sermon on the Mount, although very hard to live out, they are very easy things to understand. You know? L- love your enemies. Right? Uh, forgive over and over and over again. Right? Be the salt of the earth. They're hard to do, but they're, they're not hard things to understand. So Jesus says to him, I've been telling you about these simple things, but now you've come to me for private lessons and I'm giving you some meat here. There's no way that you're gonna be able to understand the heavenly things, but you should because I have come from heaven. And he says, I'm, I'm giving you the testimony. See, that's the difference between Jesus' teaching and everyone else's teaching. We're just passing on what somebody else has passed on to us. But Jesus is an eyewitness of these heavenly things. He was in heaven and he descended from heaven to earth to explain the wisdom of God to us. And so he says to Nicodemus, I'm not just passing on something that I heard or read in a book or I learned in school like you did, Nicodemus. This is my testimony. I'm an eyewitness of these things. You need to believe me and trust me when I speak. The third thing that I want you to write down, the third private lesson for Nicodemus, God has sent Jesus to save us. God has sent Jesus to save us. Verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So Jesus is explaining this way of salvation more. Nicodemus is already confused. He thought that he was saved just because of his parents' lineage. Now he's finding out that that's not true. How can we be saved? Jesus pulls a reference from the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 21. If you have a, a, a Bible with you, turn there, and mark it down, Numbers chapter 21. Very interesting but quick story. The Israelites are living in the wilderness in between slavery in Egypt and the land of promise. And it says in verse four, they traveled from Mount Or along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. So the people are complaining. They're frustrated. They're living in the wilderness. God is providing food for them every day. Every morning when they wake up, there's this bread-like substance called manna on the ground, right? But it wasn't I mean, it wasn't winning any awards. There was no Instagram account for manna. I mean, it it probably didn't taste good. And then on top of that, it was day after day after day. In the evening, they got quail. Quail would just fly into their camp and just die right there on the ground. So it's not like hunting. Uh, But, and it was good at first, but then you'd get tired of eating the same thing. And so the Israelites are expressing their frustration. We're tired of this food, but they cross a line. And the line they crossed was, we are frustrated, so you must not be good. The Psalms give us permission to be frustrated and even be frustrated with God. The line we cannot cross is, I am frustrated, therefore it's a character statement about you, God. 
Because I'm frustrated, you're not trustworthy. Because I'm frustrated, you don't love me. Because I'm frustrated, you're not wise. Because I'm frustrated, I'm not going to obey anymore. That's a line that we shouldn't cross. Thankfully, we live on this side of Jesus' sacrifice, but before, I mean, look what happens. Verse six, then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. Yikes. They bid the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. So the Israelites had these venomous snakes come around them and and bite them and and they were dying. And so they realized this is, there's a connection here. We have impugned the character of the Lord God and he has sent this to us. How can we be saved? We repent. We want to change. And so God tells Moses, make a pole and wrap a bronze serpent around it. And when it's lifted up, people can look at it and then they won't die from the venom, right? They, they won't die from the poison. Now, what's interesting is that is a symbol for medicine still today, a pole with a snake wrapped around it. You can Google it later, uh, but it comes from this story. Right? And so Jesus knows this story. This is in the stories of his ancestors. So he reaches back to it. He knows Nicodemus is going to know it, and he yanks it forward to explain what he's talking about. Nicodemus, we're not saved and get entrance into the kingdom of God because of how we're born. Just like our ancestors needed to be saved by something being lifted up, that's how salvation comes. Only I'm going to be the one lifted up. And when people look to me, they're going to be saved. And then he transitions into the Summary verse of the whole scripture, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's hard to do John three sixteen justice. You remember a few years ago when Tim Tebow, the football player, wore it underneath his eyes during a championship game. In the next 24 hours, 94 million people Googled John 3.16. In the, the 70s, uh, you guys know, uh, you've seen the signs at sports games. People write John 3.16, just hold it up, like kind of like, hey, I'm at an Astros game, John 3.16. Right? Uh, that started back in the early 70s. There was a, a group of uh, passionate followers of Christ who wanted to spread the word about the good news that God is saving us all through Christ. And so they were discussing among themselves, how how do we get the word out to as many people as possible? And somebody said, well, hey, they televised sports games. We should go and write John 3.16 on signs and maybe people will look it up if we get on TV. And it started this tradition of now just random people writing John 3.16 on signs. But it started with, we want to tell people, here's what you need to know about God. How should we explain that quickly, John 3.16? And it starts with God's love. For God so 
loved the world. Why is Jesus lifted up on the cross? Because God loved the world. Galatians chapter 2 Verse 20 helps us to understand it wasn't just the Father who loved us, but also the Son. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When Jesus was on the cross for our salvation, it was the love of God and his own love for us that caused that. That he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in here. I love the King James version of, of this verse because it says whosoever. That's not a word that we use any other time in our life except for John three sixteen. Whosoever, whether you are an Israelite like Nicodemus or a Gentile like most of us, whether you've been a sinner most of your life or some self-righteous person trying really hard, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're black or you're white, whether you are successful or not successful, whosoever anyone believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life again a shocker to Nicodemus's system because it never would have dawned on him that he could be one that would perish next thing that I want you to write down private lesson of Nicodemus there is no condemnation for those who believe in Israel or in Jesus excuse me there is no condemnation for those who believe in Jesus For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. At Christmas, uh, we go back to visit my family in Missouri and uh, in Missouri, you don't recycle, you just burn things. That's, uh, I didn't start it, that's just the law there. And so at, at Christmas, we uh, you know, got all these boxes and wrapping paper and all those kinds of things. We're not going to recycle, uh, but, uh, but we are going to burn stuff. And so it was time for my dad to take all the trash bags down, and, uh, and I knew where he was going with it. My parents live on a little bit of piece of property. You're not supposed to burn stuff like if you live in suburbia, uh, you know, but uh, so I just invited myself to go down to the burn spot, which they have at their house, that's right, and, uh, because I knew what was going to happen. And my dad has tools, tools to, I mean, he has real tools. I got little baby tools. He's got tools, and he has, I mean, the best way that I can describe it is he, is he has a flamethrower uh, for the purpose of burning things. And I knew he was going to get it out to celebrate our Lord's birthday, obviously, <laughs> And so I go with him and, uh, and we get all the trash in the pile on the burn spot and he's got the thing. And, uh, and so, and I'm standing close because I'm 38 now, but I'm seven inside. <laughs> and he's like, hey, you're gonna wanna, you're gonna wanna get back. <laughs> and that stuff went back into nature, you know? You're wondering how I'm going to connect the dots here. <laughs> oh, I am. It, it, it says that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. I think we give people that impression. Like Jesus' number one favorite thing to do is just to take a flamethrower to people. 
You're a sinner. You vote for the wrong party. You don't go to church. You smoke. You vape. But we've done that. He didn't come to condemn people, but he did come to condemn sin. He did come to say to sin and all of its effects, there is a judgment on you, including death. If you've bumped into death recently, you know the sting that is there and the lack of justice. This is not right. This is not holy. This is not good. And you want someone to stamp condemned on death and its effects. But Jesus came to do that. But because you and I were born in sin and gladly participated with it, he also comes to us and says, why don't you step back? I am going to burn sin and its effects and Satan who helps propagate it down to the ground. You're going to want to be separated from it though. And that's the gospel that in Christ we can have forgiveness of sin. We can be separated from it. We can have eternal life so that when he does condemn sin and all of its effects, we can just stand by and watch and say, thank you, God, that I'm not a part of it. But lots of people will choose to, to remain. They'll choose to remain for whatever reason. And then the last thing that I want you to write down, people fear the light because it exposes the darkness. People fear the light because it exposes their darkness. Verse 19, this is the verdict. In summary, Nicodemus, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. I think this last verse, he's talking about himself, that he's lived in the truth and he's in the light. Nicodemus and other people were trying to, uh, to find holes in his ministry. And he consistently said, I've done all these things in the light. Right before he was arrested, he's like, why are you arresting me in the dark? I was in the temple in the light. I'm in the light because what I am saying is approved by God. I remember when I was in high school from about 14 to 16, I had more pimples than I cared for. And so for about that year and a half period, when I would get ready in the morning in the bathroom, big mirror at my parents' house, 80s style mirror, um, I'd just leave the lights off because I didn't want to see what was in the mirror. That's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. We want to stay in the dark because we don't want to acknowledge what's there. But Jesus came to flip on the light. And it can be hard and it can be harsh but the light is where we want to live. But we all get the choice. We can love the light or we can love the darkness. But Jesus will challenge people consistently. You cannot love both. So 
So the number one thing that I, I know you're thinking about right now is, did my golf lessons work? Uh, so about a year ago, I got invited to play golf with a guy from, from church. I play golf like once a, once a year. Still have never played with my father-in-law. Uh, don't worry about it. It's fine. Uh, working through it with my therapist. But I got invited to play golf. It was, a, it was a nice place. It's like one of those places that you want to get invited to. You don't want to be a member there, but you want to get invited. When I pulled up to the entrance, they said, hello, Mr. Jones. And I was like, Apple? Google? Right? I mean, like, how do they know that? Um, they should have closed the gate based on how I played that day, but they didn't. They let me in. Amazing place. Incredibly beautiful. We hit some practice balls on the driving range, which for me is like, let's just get to it. It's not like, I don't need to practice. Like, it's awful to awful. It's not really going to matter. And so we start playing. And honestly, the golf lessons were working. I, I was not embarrassing myself until we get to about the 11th hole. And then, you know, I have one golf outfit. I got one golf shirt. I got a, a pair of shorts. The only time I wear them is when I'm playing golf. And I have a pair of golf shoes. They're, they're Nike. They're not nice, but they're like the, the cheapest Nikes that you can buy because they look like, you know, I mean, you don't, they're fine. And, uh, and so I, we tee off and uh, the guy I was playing with was pretty good. So he went straight and, uh, and I went to the right. And I get ready to hit the next ball. And as I turn my heel, the sole of my Nike golf shoe falls off. It's not a lie. Whole thing falls off. So he doesn't see it because he's, you know, moving forward. And, but I have this dilemma because this is a pretty nice place. And I think they want you to have two soles on your shoe. <laughs> and also, like, I was like, can I cover it up? Like, how? Because now I'm essentially wearing a, a Nike leather, fake leather golf sock. And uh, long story short, I thought the best thing to do was just to rip the sole off the other shoe. <laughs> he offered to buy me shoes at the golf shop, but I could, I could not take that walk of shame. <laughs> so I just said, will it be fine? But, so I'm better at golf, still embarrassing is the, the number one takeaway. So the question we really need to be asking is, did Nicodemus's private lessons work? And they did. They did. Here's how I know they did because of what it says in John chapter 19. Verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. And taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and the strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. Now, if you remember, 11 of Jesus' 12 disciples were not there in this moment. But Nicodemus was. And if these lessons work for him, they'll work for us. Number one, you must be born again. 
Number two, Jesus is from heaven. Therefore, his teaching is from heaven. Number three, God has sent Jesus to save us. Number four, there is no condemnation for those who believe in Jesus. And number five, people fear the light because it exposes their darkness. These are still lessons for us today. Let's pray.